From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Michael Isakoff and Daniel Claydman have just published the first book taking an in-depth look at District Attorney Fannie Willis's investigation of Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election. They join us today to discuss why Trump's loss in Georgia so enraged him. I'm Patricia Murphy. Georgia mourns the deaths of three Army reservists from the state, all killed in a drone attack in northeastern Jordan. I'm Bill Nygut. Two Fulton County election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, were demonized and forced into hiding by Trump and his allies. But now, WABE reporter Sam Greenglass says their work has inspired others to become poll workers. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia, setting the stakes in the agenda for Georgia politics every weekday morning. I'm Greg Bluestein. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge two bits of somber news this morning. Georgia, of course, is mourning the deaths of three U.S. Army reservists from, from here in the state, killed in a drone attack in northeastern Jordan. And this morning, we're sad to report that longtime state representative Richard Smith of Columbus has died. Smith was the chairman of the Rules Committee and a beloved figure at the state capitol. Our thoughts and prayers are with their families and loved ones, and Bill will talk about them more later in the show. Well, first, let's switch gears. Investigative journalists Michael Isakoff and Daniel Kleibman have now released a book that takes a deep look at Fannie Willis's efforts to get to the bottom of the conspiracy to overturn Georgia's elections. They are now with us to discuss Find Me the Votes, a hard-charging prosecutor, a rogue president, and the plot to steal an American election, which is just out today. Guys, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Well, we've known each other for a few years now, and I've watched your journey writing this evolving story Mm -hmm. of the investigation, even as it plays out before our very eyes. And (laughs) uh, I'll start with you, Daniel. You you guys wrote not just an engrossing political narrative, but also a complex character study of who Fonnie Willis is, what makes her tick. I, I was texting you as I was reading it over the weekend, how much I was learning about a character, about someone that, you know, we've been living with here in Georgia. And we thought, you know, we see how well we know her, we think we know her well. But this book really sheds a lot of light on who she is, what makes her tick. You guys used the phrase force of nature to describe her. What did, what did you learn about her? Well, we use the phrase force of nature because many of the people we interviewed use the phrase yeah. force of nature. Look, uh, we spent a lot of time with her. We interviewed her. Uh, half a dozen times over the course of uh, two years, many, many hours. And I think it led to a pretty nuanced portrait of a very complicated and in the end, very human person. Uh, she is a kind of larger than life character. And sometimes people like that, you know, their 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 flaws can sometimes seem as big as their uh, as, as their uh, strengths. And she's got, you know, uh, prodigi- prodigious uh, strengths. Um, the, the thing that we saw and it's sort of the, the kind of two two sides of a coin in, in in some ways. She is a very steely and confident person. Um, and 
Um, there are uh, scenes in the book uh, that uh, I think we're going to get into um, that show that, particularly an anecdote involving T.I. Uh, from Atlanta, uh, which um, uh, I know uh, you, uh, you spotted that uh, that story. Um, that's her ability to kind of stand up to uh, to, to bullies. On the other hand, um, we did notice a touch of, of arrogance. Um, she is a trial lawyer um, and, um, you know, probably one of the best trial lawyers who ever graced you know the courtrooms of, of Fulton County but trial lawyers um can carry themselves with you know a bit of braggadocio um a little bit of cockiness um and uh, and, a, and a kind of certitude uh that sometimes can uh, lead you uh to places where maybe you don't want to be led to and and that may be part of uh what what the dynamic is here with the latest controversy surrounding her well guys of course right now Fannie Willis's alleged relationship with Nathan Wade is in the news, and there are multiple court developments expected this week, including a Friday deadline for Fannie Willis to respond to a motion seeking to disqualify her from the case. So, Michael, in the course of reporting this book, did anything give you pause as you reported on their interactions with each other? Uh, between um, uh, Nathan Fani Wade and Fannie Willis? Willis and Nathan Wade? Yeah. No, not at all. I mean, look, th there's a couple things to say about this. I, I mean, and one is, um, you know, obviously we were all shocked when the uh, allegations first surfaced in that Michael Roman motion. But one thing we understand is the people closest to her, including people on the team, were shocked as well. They did not know. Mm. Um, she had obviously known Nathan Wade for a long time, but he was not her first choice to, to lead this case. In fact, one of the things we reveal in Find Me the Votes is that um, she had trouble finding anybody to take the job. She reached out to Roy Barnes, the former governor of Georgia, last Democratic governor, and he turned her down. <laughs> Why? Because of the threats. His quote was, hypothetically speaking, do you want a bodyguard following you around for the rest of your life? She reached out, reached out to another former federal prosecutor, highly regarded Gabe Banks. He, too, turned her down. So, um, you know, it's not as though she steered something to Nathan Wade as part of some, you know, elaborate uh, uh, plan that was hatched early on. Hmm. Look, clearly, uh, to to have the relationship when you're investigating, you're doing the most high-profile case, arguably in the country at that point, was a lapse in judgment, a serious one. But, you know, taking a step back, come on. I mean, we there's absolutely no evidence that it had any impact on the case at all, that it affected the constitutional rights of Michael Roman or any of the other defendants. Um, there's no uh, issue here of prosecutorial misconduct. We'll see how she pushes back in this motion that uh, gets filed, uh, 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 I think, Friday. Mm -hmm. Friday's but, the um, Yeah, but, um, you know, at this point, um, I don't think we see evidence that's going to lead to her having to be disqualified or step down from the case. All right, guys. Well, um, along with this really incredible portrait that you've painted of Fannie Willis, I really encourage our audience to pick up a copy of this book because you get into a lot of the other characters here in Georgia politics and gave some insight into um, some of their roles that I don't think had been fully reported to this point. Um, one of those people uh, is Jordan Fuchs, who is the deputy secretary of state who um, uh, we had known uh, and we've known her for a long time, um, but you really get into the deep details of how she decided to tape that call, that famous find me the votes telephone call between 
former President Donald Trump and um, her boss, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, including the fact that she did it while she was visiting her grandparents in Florida while all this was unfolding. Um, Dan, give us a little bit of detail into that chapter because it's really incredible. Yeah. Look, first of all, um, there were a lot of unsung heroes um, in Georgia uh, during that post-election battle, and many of them were Republicans. We talk about the sort of iron uh, wall of Republican resistance, starting with uh, Governor Kemp, um, who resisted all of the pressure from Donald Trump to hold a special session uh, to, to, to try to overturn the election. But Chris Carr, the attorney general, who threatened to resign uh, instead of joining this bogus lawsuit, um, all the way down to, uh, you know, uh, much lower level office holders, including uh, Jordan Fuchs. This is a, a a really dramatic and extraordinary story, and a story, uh, you know, I think of 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 heroism. We we call it the most um, uh, the, the 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 gutsiest and most consequential uh, decision of the post election uh, battle in in some ways. Uh, Jordan Fuchs, uh, thirty years old um, at the time, a, um, uh, a a political consultant who uh, you know most people had never heard of, other than reporters like like you guys. Um, she knows that this call is going to happen between uh, the president um, and Brad Raffensperger's and others on the staff. And she makes uh, this incredible decision to take the call without telling anybody. She does this unilaterally. She doesn't tell her boss. She doesn't tell uh, Mark Meadows, who's been uh, coordinating with her to, to set up the call. And of course, she doesn't tell the president himself. She is concerned. I think with a lot of good reason that if the if the call is not taped, uh, Trump is just going to go out and and distort uh, whatever was said on that call uh, to advance his own uh, political interests. As you point out, uh, exactly what he did, (laughs) which is exactly what he did, which is exactly what he did. Uh, Brad Raffensperger tweeted the truth will come out. uh, And of course, the truth did come out in that in that phone call. Um, uh, Patricia, what you mentioned was that she was in Florida at the time visiting her grandparents. Uh, this makes it even more uh, uh, gutsy because Florida is a two, two-party two consent state, which means that she needed, legally, she need, she was required to have the consent of, uh, of of the people that she was recording, in this case, the, pres- the, the president of the United States. She went ahead with it anyway, exposing herself to, uh, to potential criminal prosecution. In fact, when the January 6th committee uh, wanted to uh, call her a uh, 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 to, to get her testimony, uh, a lawyer for the Secretary of State's office intervened and said, please don't call her. Uh, the reason we understand is because of that potential uh, criminal exposure. When she finally did testify before the special purpose grand jury, Fonnie Willis's grand jury that was investigating the case, she was given a grant of immunity. Um, so very gutsy thing to do. Uh, and frankly, you know, we talk about democracy that are sort of hanging in the balance these days. Well, it really is uh, people people like her who make these kinds of decisions um, and uh, and resist uh, the the potential consequences of them. But but just to underscore this, had Jordan Fuchs not done what she did and taped that call, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have the most compelling evidence of Trump's pressure campaign in Georgia. Evidence that is used that is central in Jack Smith's indictment in Washington, and of course, part of Fonnie Willis's indictment. That's such a good point, um, because we, here in Atlanta. Uh, we know that the call with Francis Watson was recorded. We know that there was a call with the late Speaker David Ralston, which was recorded, which we still haven't heard. We don't 
we have no idea if there was ever a call with Governor Kemp recorded, but that, that, that was the single piece of evidence that has gone everywhere. Um, I want to jump in uh, and talk more about courage. You, you talk about the political courage of people like uh, Governor Kemp, for that matter, uh, Attorney General Chris Carr, who we learned for the first time, uh, said he'd, he would resign if uh, rather than be involved in a special session being called to uh, look at the results of the presidential election here. But let's go back to Fonnie Willis. Uh, because she is one of those people, along with folks like Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, who faced physical uh, dangers for their involvement in this case. And I think you tell a story that uh, is not only really fascinating because of the intrigue about it, uh, but also what it says about Fonnie Willis's own concerns about her security. Um, one of you describe, Michael, describe yeah. what Fonnie Willis did right after releasing the indictments against Trump and co-conspirators, holding her news conference. She goes back to her office and does what? This is one of the most dramatic yeah. stories that I think we came across in the course of doing this. We were all that night of the indictment back in August, waiting for hours at the government center, Fulton County Government Center for that, um, uh, for the indictment and Fonnie Willis's press conference, which doesn't come to like midnight, right? She goes back after that press conference, which we've all been covering, and goes back to her office before the indictment. They had picked up the Fulton County uh, security people had picked up a threat on a MAGA website, the best time to shoot her is when she leaves the building. They were worried about an assassination threat. And by the way, that comes after a, a just a torrent of vile, racist, sexualized threats to her and her family. But this one was like really spooked them, an assassination threat. So Funny Wilson goes back after that press conference, takes off her black business suit and pearls that she wore for the press conference, puts on sweats, a T-shirt and a, a baseball cap and a body double. Somebody on the staff who resembles Fonnie Willis puts on this, a, a similar black business suit that she was wearing, similar pearls all uh, over a Kevlar bulletproof vest that she was wearing. And she, the body double, drives out um, from the garage. Um, uh, thankfully, nothing happened. And Fonnie Willis is smuggled out the back door of the uh, of the Fulton County District Attorney's office to an undisclosed location at a hotel. Um, amazing. I mean, think about yeah. that. You know, the, you know, would would Jack Smith and or Merrick Garland ever have to be smuggled out of their offices after a uh, after a, a press conference? Yet that was the kind of threat and pressure that Fonnie Willis and her team were under the whole. Uh, throughout this whole process. I just want to add like a very, just a very quick coda to this. There, there was a, a re, sort of a poignant irony uh, to us in the fact that Fonnie Willis, who was investigating these horrible threats of violence um, and, and sexual violence and all sorts of terrible things, uh, you know, primarily against, um, a, a, often against black women like Ruby Freeman and, and Shea Moss. And, uh, and, and in the midst of that, she's getting the same kinds of, of threats. So it was uh, obviously had become very personal in a way. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss in our next segment. Uh, but 
I want to remind our listeners, we're here with Daniel Kleidman and Michael Isakoff, authors of Find Me the Votes, the book out today on the Fulton County investigation. Our colleagues, Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman, have also been following the investigation from the start. And this year is the subject of their award-winning breakdown podcast. I wrote a book on the political side of the Georgia 2020 election called Flipped. And Daniel, here's one of the details in your book that I wished I had from my book, which was when then U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson went to the Oval Office in December of 2019 with a group of relatives and aides, some of his most loyal aides, for a send-off from Donald Trump. The president, the then-president, ended up ranting about Governor Kemp and declared himself the most popular Republican in Georgia. And only those of those who know Johnny Isaacson or knew Johnny Isaacson really appreciate this line from a very humble Johnny Isaacson, who also was pretty much probably had it up to his ears with Donald Trump by that point, where he interjected, according to your book, actually, I'm the most popular Republican in Georgia. That was the moment I think a lot of people was, in that room realized um, how much of a, a headache 2020 was going to be for Republicans. It was it was vintage uh, Donald Trump. I'm going to I'm going to let Isakoff tell the story. He reported that um, and um, and talked to the. Uh, the, the the personality so yeah I'll, yeah I'll just 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 a remarkable scene just remember yeah. Johnny Isaacson at this point has announced his resignation he's suffering from Parkinson's he's uh, he's he's really fading he's struggling he has to be you know uh, use a uh, walker to get around the Senate so he announces his resignation um, he had been one of uh, the handful of Republicans in Washington who had been openly critical mm-hmm. of Donald Trump at one time, you know, called on him to apologize. He was enraged when at Trump's uh, treatment of John McCain, especially after his uh, after he passed and Trump refused to bring down the uh, to fly the flag at half staff in the White House at first. So, you know, then Trump seemingly magnanimously invites Johnny Isaacson and his staff and close friends to uh, the Oval Office. And, you know, they think, oh, wow, you know, Trump's going to let bygones be bygones. And this is going to be a tribute to John's long record of public service in Georgia. And in fact, it turns into something else. Trump just is enraged about the appointment of, uh, 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 about Kemp's appointment of Kelly Leffler Mm -hmm. as the, uh, as the replacement for Isaacson and just goes on and on about, um, uh, about Kemp. And it really underscores the, uh, the fury that Trump felt towards Kemp for what he perceived as a betrayal because Trump didn't do what he wanted him to do. He wanted him to um, uh, appoint Doug Collins to the Senate seat. And, you know, Kemp, for his own reasons, chose otherwise. But it really underscored, you know, uh, not long after Johnny Isaacson passes, there's a really poignant scene where one of his um, longtime aides is talking to him about getting young people to uh, serve in serve in public service um, uh, and Johnny Isaacson's at this point completely disgusted by Trump, um, thinks his uh, his his election claims are complete bull, and says, you know, I don't even know that I could re- urge anybody to do that anymore to get involved in the public arena. Very sad. Shortly after that, he passes, and you know, he was the senior senator from Georgia, and at the time that. Uh, you know, not long after the most prominent Georgian in Washington is somebody very different, Marjorie Taylor Greene. 
who've just been elected. Just a real quick note, having known Johnny Isaacson for 35 plus years, you're, <laughs> that revelation is so amazing because as Greg points out, you could not have asked for a more humble mm-hmm. public servant than Johnny Isaacson. For him to have asserted right. himself that way in the Oval Office tells us a lot about the animus that he had toward Trump at that point. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it, it's, you know, from Johnny Isaacson to Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene tells us a lot about the, the, the path of politics in Georgia and perhaps the country. Well, you also go a little bit further down the path of the events in this book. And John Isaacson, his son, was initially supposed to be an elector, one of the alternate or fake electors. Um, and he said, I'm not I'm not going to do that. So obviously somebody else came in in his place. Um, Mike, I have a more meta question for you to pull out a little bit um, from the details of the book. You um, obviously were so hugely involved in breaking the story about Monica Lewinsky and her relationship with President Clinton uh, way back when that seemed like the biggest scandal that ever could be um, in a presidential uh, administration. And now you've gotten into the details of this highly localized but national um, scandal of proportions I don't think people ever imagined. Um, what is your view of where what this says about politics? What used to be a scandal and what is a scandal now? <laughs> you know, I've thought about a little bit, uh, you know, uh, you know, a line I've used is, um, I know a thing or two about sex scandals, uh, uh, having covered the Clinton years um, um, many years ago. Um, and I got to say, you know, the uh, the Nathan Wade, uh, Fonnie Willis relationship to, uh, to adults, single adults in their 50s uh, involved in an inner office romance seems like about as lame a sex scandal as one can come up with. There's no nothing uh, improper on its face about two adults, uh, consenting adults, having a, uh, a relationship um, on its face. But look, I, you know, um, as uh, as as worked up as people got during the Clinton years over his transgressions, which I believe were real um, and um, uh, and and deserving of uh, of public exposure. I mean, what. Trump was doing in uh, after the 2020 election, I think Trump's, um, you know, the previous scandals that I've dealt with in a lifetime of covering Washington. I mean, it really, I think we call it, you know, the most anti-democratic plot in American history. And the depth that Trump went to, the intensity, the fury with which he tried to alter the election results is so stunning when you put it under a microscope and look as we did at what he was doing in Georgia. We talk about Sidney Powell, the lawyer uh, who was in constant touch with Trump throughout this process. That's something we um, uh, learned in the course of reporting. It was drawing up plans for criminal break-ins at election offices with the operatives protected with what she called hunting licenses, which were preemptive presidential pardons, pardons. And we can trace how those like bonkers plans for criminal break-ins, you know, how that ultimately led through a number of twists and turns, which we go into the book, into an actual raid in Coffee County mm-hmm. where to get access to Dominion election machines, um, a, a case of computer theft that's charged in the uh, Fulton County indictment. Um, so it's, a, you know, it was a, a, a modern day version of Watergate in some ways. Um, um, it was a criminal trespassing 
And it was all um, all hatched by Sidney Powell trying to get this evidence of you know Venezuelan socialists planting uh, algorithms in, in voting machines. All yeah. nonsense. Stuff. Can I can I make um, a can I make a point uh, just picking up on this that it, this is a uh, something that is was not unique to Georgia but was very present in, in Georgia that we came across a lot in our reporting, and and that is uh, the extent to which QAnon. Uh, that, you know, the far right conspiracy cult was a, dr- a driver of the Stop the Steal uh, enterprise. And I think that's not fully uh, appreciated. Um, we focused uh, a great deal on a, a lawyer from Georgia uh, uh, that your listeners will be familiar with, oh, yeah. uh, Lynn, Lynn, Lynn Wood, um, uh, who, you know, who was a celebrated trial lawyer in the 90s. People remember the Richard Jewell case, obviously, John Benet Ramsey. And then he goes down, you know, years later, he goes down the QAnon uh, rabbit hole. And he's kind of representative of this sort of symbiotic relationship between QAnon and and Trump world. Um, And he becomes sort of the face of the kind of quixotic uh, Trump legal battle to overturn the election in Georgia. And he's a full, full on devotee of QAnon. I mean, this is a guy who is tweeting that Mike Pence is going to be executed by firing squad. That uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, um, you know, is, is involved in pedophilia and and child sex trafficking, um, and meanwhile, uh, after all of this, uh, Trump brings him into the inner sanctum uh, of his legal battle. He is the face of of that battle in in some ways. And you know, this stuff. I thought a lot about this. You know, it's colorful and weird and exotic. But it's also dangerous and mm-hmm. has real, real consequences. And it had real consequences in Georgia. And one quick example, one of the QAnon people who was involved in all of this and, in fact, was in touch with Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell and the others uh, was a guy named Ron Watkins, who was a central figure in QAnon. Some believe he was actually Q himself. Ron Watkins uh, tweets a video. Uh, of a Dominion uh, uh, tech worker tech. In, in in Georgia, a young uh, tech worker who works on these Dominion uh, voting machines, who was you know putting a thumb drive in servicing the machine. the machine, yeah, yeah. And and Ron Watkins goes out there and he says he's he's manipulating uh, voting data. Total nonsense, no basis for it at all. But Ron Watkins also has hundreds of thousands of followers, and he unleashes the the QAnon masses, including cyber sleuths who uncover this uh, Dominion tech worker's identity, uh, and and they rain down upon him horrible threats of violence, including a a noose, uh, an animated uh, GIF or noose uh, uh, that that's swinging ominously back and forth on in front of his house uh, on his social on social media, um, and. Uh, What's important about it, this is sort of a, an, an important inflection point where Gabe Sterling, who uh, uh, you all know, uh, the chief of operations in the secretary of state's office, that was the limit for him. When he saw what happened to this this young tech worker, that's when he goes out on state capitol and gives this iconic uh, press conference in which he cast castigates the president for his uh, his, his hateful rhetoric and, and, and conspiracy mongering. And he says. This has to end. Someone's going to get killed, he says prophetically. Yeah. And of course, we know what happened on January 6th. Yeah, he was right. Well, 
Guys, that's all the time we have for this segment. Thank you, Daniel Kleiman. Thank you, Mike Isikoff, for joining us on the launch day of their book, Find Me the Votes, which you can pick up right now at your favorite retailer. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us. Great. Well, when we come back, WABE reporter Sam Greenglass joins us to talk about his report this week about how the two Fulton County election workers wrongly vilified by Trump and his allies have become inspirations to some who want to work at the polls in Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. You can consider it your jolt of daily morning news. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com slash newsletters. I'm Greg Bluestein along with Patricia Murphy and Bill Nygut. And now we're joined by WABE Sam Greenglass. Sam, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Well, Sam, by now most Georgians have heard about the vile, hate-filled lies that Trump's allies directed at Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss after the 2020 election when those two Fulton County election workers wrongly accused of all sorts of horrible things. They won a massive judgment from Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani. But Sam, you wrote about something else that's really interesting that's happening. They're inspiring others to work as election staffers, especially in Fulton County. Yeah, Greg, this is something that I started wondering about around the time that Trump and the others were indicted in Fulton County. I wondered if folks who had worked that election that was called into question on the national stage, how they felt about, you know, steps toward justice uh, against the people who questioned the integrity of their work. And uh, there was an opportunity to ask that question. Uh, Fulton County has been having these recruitment fairs all around the county, from the very northern stretches of Fulton all the way to the south. And uh, I went to one a couple of weeks ago in College Park, and uh, it was just packed at this little community center in College Park where people were lined up to volunteer to sign up and work the election. Uh, Sam, it's Patricia. This is one of my favorite stories in a long time Mm -hmm. because it is so it gave me hope (laughs) about the future, gave me hope about elections. And it really gives you hope for people still really wanting to participate in democracy. And um, as a poll worker, not out of ignorance about the threats that could come their way. But because of the threats that came for um, Shamos and Ruby Freeman, and I love these anecdotes and the women in particular who you interviewed, um, Evelyn Myers and Vanita Epps, and they both said, I'm not afraid. Will you talk a little bit about the people you met? Yeah, so I met a handful of people, um, most of them older Black women uh, who were signing up to serve and work this upcoming election. And they kind of fell into two categories. The first, people like Evelyn Myers, who is signing up to work her very first election. She's never worked an election before and said she wanted to do it to inspire her grandkids, who are all kind of late teens, early 20s, voting for their first time. Uh, But she said she also felt compelled to serve by these attacks that Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss faced. So she knew 
the possibility of threats. She saw what happened to them uh, unfold on TV. And she said she is not a person who has the spirit of fear inside of her and that she thinks that she could do this. So that's someone who's signing up to do this for the first time. I also met a couple of people who have done this for more than two decades. These two friends, Gloria Smith and Vanita Epps, um, both of them started working elections in the early 2000s. Uh, and both said that they were inspired by their parents who came of age at a time when Black voters in Georgia were regularly denied the right to vote. You know, one of them, her parents ended up being part of a case that went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, United States v. Reigns, when they tried to register to vote in Terrell County, Georgia in 1957. So they said they were really inspired uh, by their parents and how they instilled in them the importance of voting and fighting for the ballot box, even when it was difficult. And I think that really, you know, has some echoes in this current moment when poll workers and other public officials who are trying to do this very fundamental work of making our democracy function are, are faced with the possibility of threats and harassment. You know, Sam, um, I, I think about it. You just said it. it, it this is democracy <clears throat> in action. Um, we know how popular absentee uh, voting has become for so many uh, people over the last couple of election cycles. I think going into your local polling place and seeing the people who year after year volunteer, they don't quite volunteer, but the amount of money they're paid, they might as well be volunteering. Um, the fact that they care so deeply about this is always a remarkable thing uh, to watch. And, and it, I, but, but here's my question for you. Um, while they're talking about the women you interviewed, um, they're not going to allow themselves to be afraid of all of this. The other thing that they are doing is um, countering all of the Donald Trump-inspired insistence about elections being rigged. That And he's already begun planting those seeds for 2024, should he lose, uh, presumably, as the nominee in November. Um, and these are people who are saying, no, 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 elections are still legitimate and we're going to be there to help the process move forward. That's so important. Yeah. And I think also the county realizes that this type of communication has to be a part of the work that they're doing as well. Uh, you know, at this recruitment event, I talked to Lashandra Little, who is the Fulton County Voter Outreach and Education Manager. This position was one that was created since 2020. And, you know, I've talked to other election experts around the country who are in communication with election departments. And one thing that they're really focused on, something that's new, is trying to train election workers to be able to communicate with the public to explain how the mm. process works, you know, to try and counter some of this misinformation and disinformation that has really grown since 2020. So there's de-escalation training. Uh, you know, I talked to the head of this group called the Elections Group, a firm that works with election officials around the country. And they said one of their most popular, most frequently downloaded resources is a, a de-escalation training tool. Mm. So it's this kind of communi two-way communication from election offices to the public that might have more questions than they did in the past about how elections work. And that is now baked into the training that many election workers are getting. And much needed. We're here with Sam Greenglass from WABE, who wrote that despite all the pressure on election workers, Fulton County has now filled all 2,300 election day positions. That's incredible. But Sam, it's also true that other jurisdictions are still struggling to, to fill their election worker staffers and volunteers. And 
These are the hardworking people who serve as the backbone of our election system. And if these positions aren't filled, it could lead to to some problems uh, on election day. And in Georgia, we know uh, not only (laughs) about what those problems could mean, but also we have a lot of election days. Primaries, runoffs, presidential elections. In some years, some uh, especially midterms, you have you have uh, general election runoffs as well. So that's a lot of positions to fill. And you know, when I was talking to the Fulton County Communications Manager about this figure, twenty three hundred election day positions filled, I had to ask, like, is that just November? Are we talking about June? Are we talking about May? Are we talking about March? Like, what election day are we talking about? Because there are so many. So yeah, twenty three hundred election day positions are filled for all of the election days, but they are still recruiting for advanced voting and for their reserve staff. You know, people that you can bring in if someone calls in sick before election day. But you make a good point, Fulton County. County is just one county in the state. Uh, I think it was yesterday, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger put out a press release uh, upping this call for people to sign up to be poll workers around the state. So this is a challenge that jurisdictions are still facing outside of Fulton County. Uh, so yeah, th- this is also, you know, something that I've been wondering about as we talk, you know, about the Fulton County grand jury investigation, when grand jurors received threats and were doxxed online, you know, this broader conversation about certain Serving on juries or judges, election workers, election officials, you know, the possibility of facing threats, harassment, being doxxed online. You know, I wonder, is there a challenge across, you know, civil society of getting people to want to sign up and serve? And I think that is certainly an open question that we're going to have to keep following. Sam, to that point, you cite a Brennan Center survey of election officials, and more than half of them were very worried that threats um, and potential intimidation could keep them from filling their ranks for all of their poll workers that they're going to be needing. Did you find anxiety among um, the leaders of these counties and election officials about what could happen? Are they worried in this environment? Obviously, in Fulton County, they're filling those slots, which is so wonderful. But do you sense anxiety about what's ahead? I think there's a real sense of you know, needing to prepare for any possibility. And election officials tell me that, you know, they are preparing for any contingency. Uh, You know, I mentioned Jennifer Morell, who runs this firm, the Elections Group. She is a former election official. And she said, you know, when she was running elections, the kinds of, you know, contingency plans that election officials had to have in place had to do with things like, what if there's a fire at a polling place? What if there's a flood? What if the power goes out? But that is increasingly having to consider things like threats of violence or violence, whether it's, you know, a coordinated effort or or from, you know, some kind of lone actor. So I think uh, election officials are having plans in place uh, to respond with whatever comes their way. You know, I asked Fulton County about this. They said it's not something that potential election volunteers have really brought up to them, but they said if they do that, they can assure them that they have plans in place, whether it's coordinating with local law enforcement uh, or any other number of, of contingency plans. It's something that is on their radar and that they're really thinking about and having to prepare for. Well, Sam, the National Conference of State Legislators put out a report last year on the national shortage of poll workers. And one of the takeaways was voicing appreciation and support for the vital work <laughs> done by poll workers can help inspire more to apply or return for the next election. So consider this program one of our ways of saying a very <laughs> grateful thank you to those who serve our democracy by volunteering or working. Yes, at indeed. Uh, Sam, we've got to take a quick break. Will you stick around for the next segment? I'll be here. Great. Well, 
tributes are pouring in for the three Georgia soldiers killed overseas in Jordan. We'll discuss how the Biden administration is responding to the attacks after the break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This podcast is part of the mission of the AJC, to be the most essential and engaging source of news for the people of Atlanta, Georgia, and the entire South. Stay up to date every day on breaking news, in-depth investigations, politics, sports, entertainment, food and dining, and so much more by becoming a subscriber to the AJC. Go to AJC.com start for a very special offer and unlock hundreds of original articles published daily on the refreshed AJC.com and the new AJC mobile app. Plus, you'll have access to our news alerts, subscriber-only events, AJC original shows, films and videos, newsletters, podcasts, and so much more. That's AJC.com start. I'm Greg Bluestein here in studio with Patricia Murphy and Bill Nygut, and we're joined by WABE reporter Sam Greenglass. Guys, we're starting this block off on a somber note. We learned Monday that all three of the U.S. Army reservists killed in a drone attack in Jordan on Sunday were based here in Georgia at Fort Moore. Specialist Brianna Moffitt, 23 years old, Sergeant William Rivers, 46 years old, and Specialist Kennedy Sanders, 24 years old, were, were those who were killed. At least 40 other soldiers were injured, Patricia. And the Associated Press reports that U.S. forces may have mistaken the enemy drone for an American one and let it pass unchallenged. But this really is a somber day for Georgians. And I know a lot of politicians have been expressing, and, and just and residents have been expressing their gratitude and remembering that there's a number of reservists who are still stationed in the Middle East in very dangerous positions right now. That's right. I think that when this news broke, that is just so incredibly sad because these were uh, really young people, young Georgians who were uh, serving their country. It probably came as news to some Georgians and many Americans that there were reservists in Jordan um, uh, deployed as a as a piece of the fight against ISIS for the United States. Um, it is incredibly dangerous, but I think we're also seeing um, a very concerning uptick, um, and this is a part of it, um, on attacks on American forces by Iranian-backed groups that are not necessarily Iran, but they're um, funded and supported by Iran, and um, more than 100 in the last several months of attacks. And uh, it's created a situation while the war in Gaza is going on as well that is just potentially very, very volatile, potentially explosive. And um, this very tragic local angle is a reminder of how much is at stake and how little most Americans really understand about the United States involvement in the Middle East right now. Yeah, I, I for just a moment, I, I want to put aside the fact that we know that we're going to have to watch to see how President Biden responds to this. And I know we're going to want to talk about that. And I want to put aside the politics. I, I'm frankly disturbed when I see there are Republicans who, while expressing sympathy for the loss of these um, National Guards people, um, are attacking Joe Biden already about not protecting them uh, in the way that they claim he should have. And I want to talk about the fact that we know that Georgia has an enormous military presence, a, a huge military community here. 
and and so I think we feel a, a, a pain along with the others, the people, the families, the friends who are suffering, and see that these three come from all parts of Georgia, Carrollton, Waycross, Savannah. They've come and they are fighting for their country, um, and Georgia should be very proud of the fact that uh, we turn out people like like these. Um, no matter how you feel about the war in Israel against Hamas, no matter how you feel about the Middle East, these are young people who chose to uh, defend their country and have now sacrificed for it. Sam, something that struck me was a tweet sent by my friend Davis Winkie, who's a reporter over at the Army Times, who wrote, the National Guard and Reserve are doing the jobs that you don't see, still leaving their civilian worlds behind to fight the wars, the wars that most Americans think are over. You know, as, as Bill and Patricia mentioned, Sometimes we can forget that there are still people, uh, army guards, army guardsmen, and national guardsmen, and reserve troopers and soldiers based in these very dangerous areas that that, that aren't on the front pages of the news every day that we don't we hardly talk about. Yeah, and you know, Greg, you mentioned the front pages of the news this morning. I just perused some of the headlines uh, in these communities uh, where these soldiers came from. You know, Savannah Morning News, Savannian among three soldiers killed, WJCL. Her sacrifice will not be forgotten. Where County Honor Soldier killed in Carrollton. Our hearts are broken. Georgia community mourns death of hometown soldier. And to see, you know, a conflict many thousands of miles away on the front pages of community newspapers and TV stations here in Georgia, I think does bring the scale of the conflict and the stakes home in a really different way than maybe we've seen before. Though I will note too, like, you know, being at the Capitol covering, you know, the fallout from the conflict in Israel and Gaza, we have also heard uh, from family, uh, from Georgians who have families mm -hmm. in Israel and in Gaza, who have for the last several weeks and months been talking about their families who are wrapped up in the conflict. And I think it'll be important to watch how this unfolds over the next couple of months as, you know, people here uh, have increasing, uh, you know, ramifications mm -hmm. from uh, what's unfolding in the Middle East. Patricia, there's also no denying that this leaves the Biden administration in a tough position as they try and prevent this Hamas-Israel war from spiraling into a broader regional con conflict. We, we've we heard, you know, we've, there's been a lot of reporting about how Iran does not want a broader regional conflict, but at the same time, they're arming and encouraging militias based in Yemen based in other parts of the Middle East to attack Israeli and American assets. We've seen the Houthi tribe attacking shipping in the Red Sea. We've seen a lot of pressure already, even before this, on the Biden administration to take more decisive action to stop some of those attacks. And there's been a lot of drone attacks that were unsuccessful against U.S. military assets all over the Middle East before, before these tragic deaths. Yeah, and I think that... Um as much as we want to take the politics out of it, we have a sitting U.S. president who is up for election this year. And when I was out on the campaign trail in Iowa and New Hampshire, the way the president handled um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan left a searing image in many American voters' minds. And many feeling that um, that although the situation was created by many presidents over many years, the last moments captured on uh, video and disseminated live around the world uh, were so painful and really left an image for those voters who said they're voting against Joe Biden because of that moment. Um, his response in this 
moment right now? Do you risk a larger conflict by um, by going after Iran directly? Uh, do you uh, not respond at all, which also feels unsatisfactory when you have three dead Georgians um, who were attacked in their barracks by a drone, uh, which is a whole nother conversation about sort of modern warfare and where all of this is going. I do think it's a hugely consequential time for the president. And you do see Republicans in particular blaming him very directly in a way that we don't typically see in just the 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 very short hours after the deaths of Americans. I think you're absolutely right that, that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a turning point for Biden and his presidency. We've talked about it on the show before. It was at that moment that his approval numbers started to uh, go down and haven't recovered since. Um You know, it is going to be fascinating to see how he responds in this election year, but also as a president who has to react to this violent act. Um, I was looking back at the way in which previous presidents have dealt with similar incidents. President Reagan, in the aftermath of uh, hostile actions by Iran, had an opportunity to directly attack Iran. Instead, when after Iranian offshore oil platforms and ships, which in the Reagan administration's um, uh, reading of this was not as direct a threat in terms of an attack on Iran. President Biden will have options of that sort, economic sanctions, although that seems like I, I think he's going to be criticized mm-hmm. for that. But he does have these various options now to look at. Yeah, there's a lot of tools, uh, private you know, and very public, whether they be military attacks, whether it be more economic sanctions, whether they be other other efforts. And of course, part of the part of the difficulty and the challenge is that it's these are not necessarily state actors, right? And, and I don't know about this one, but in some of these cases, these are these are militias uh, that are proxies of Iran that make it so difficult to, to measure and gauge that attack. Well, certainly, our thoughts are with those families as they grieve the soldiers who made the ultimate sacrifice. Sam, we also learned this morning of the death of longtime Republican Representative Richard Smith of Columbus. Smith was the chair of the Agenda Setting Rules Committee, a very close friend of Speaker John Burns, and really a very close friend of anyone under the Capitol. Here's how the Speaker described him in a note to his colleagues this morning. And I'm quoting Speaker John Burns here. He loved everyone in this building and never met a stranger. He was incredibly kind, generous, wise, supportive, and exceedingly loyal. But he would also tell you how he felt why he was right and wouldn't mince words about it. That was Richard more than anything. He was a friend in the truest sense of the word. Sam, I know a lot of people in Columbus, all over Georgia and, and at the Georgia Capitol are, are reeling this morning, uh, the, the, the overnight death of Richard Smith. Yeah, we've already seen a couple of press conferences and events planned at the Capitol today canceled until further notice. Uh, statements, as you mentioned, from Burns, but also from House Minority Leader James Beverly, you know, underscoring the bipartisan nature of this loss. I expect on the House floor today, we will hear remembrances, uh, you know, when lawmakers have a chance to go up to the lectern and, uh, you know, remark on the news of the day. I expect we will hear some of that emotion on the House floor. Uh, And just to, you know, explain a little bit about the Rules Committee, this is the committee that's kind of this interim step between uh, the subject matter committee that advances a bill and the the floor. You know, these are the folks that kind of decide 
to schedule a bill for a vote on the on the broader force. So really an important, powerful position, as you mentioned, an ally of Burns, but also former House Speaker David Ralston. Uh, so I imagine this will really be ricocheting across the Capitol today and, you know, for the rest of the week. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mr. Smith also succeeded uh, Jay Powell, who had been the chairman of the Rules Committee, who who also died in office. So I think this is comes as just a real shock and a blow to uh, members up on the Hill. Um, and when we're looking at the differences between the state house and the state Senate right now, um, the state house is a very steady body at this moment um, because of the leadership first of David Ralston and now John Burns. It, you don't get a lot of surprises. You get um, uh, legislation uh, right now, typically focused on tax cuts and, uh, uh, economic initiatives. And um, uh, Richard Smith was a big part of that as well, Sam, because as you said, at the um, in the Rules Committee, you don't just schedule those votes. You decide what's getting a vote on the House floor. And that's a place that you can also kill legislation mm-hmm. if it feels like it's not uh, setting the tone and keeping with the agenda that uh, the Speaker is looking for. Yeah, we always say powerful Rules Committee to describe committee, but we, it is no understatement when we talk about this. And Bill, I, I do... But about one of my favorite quotes or most compelling quotes I've heard so far is from Caleb McMitchin, the longtime aide to the late Speaker David Ralston, who said this of Richard Smith. He's one of those who deserves a statue in his honor, and he would have been repulsed at such a thought. I think that just <laughs> sums up the guy. You know, I don't think a lot of people – We it's easy to see the fighting and the feuding that goes on over legislation and under the Gold Dome as Republicans, Democrats uh, don't agree on, on many issues – uh, but the reality is um, there is a sense, family's too strong a word, but there is a sense of a community of people who do in many cases care about each other pretty deeply beyond the political issues they may have. And I think uh, the death of somebody like Richard Smith points that out clearly to a lot of us. I think you put it perfectly right there. And, and family is a word that is thrown around down there. You know, as much as they disagree with each other, family is a word that comes up a lot. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Wednesday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.